Mean Old Lion Media presents Pregnancy Pearls. Meet Dr. Nicole Plenty, a double board certified OBGYN and high risk pregnancy expert. She's brilliant, well researched, and feisty. Growing tired of seeing complications of pregnancy that could have been prevented, she wanted a way to empower women through knowledge because, as she says, all doctors aren't created equal. This quest to educate women birthed this podcast, Pregnancy Pearls, with Dr. Plenty. Thanks for listening to Pregnancy Pros Podcast with me, Dr. Nicole Plenty. If you're anything like me, you live from holiday to holiday or from vacation to vacation. So the next little break we have coming up is fall break, which starts pretty much this weekend. (laughs) So who knew that preschoolers needed a break less than two months into the school year? Yep. Now I'm charged with entertaining my toddler. So I took off a few days of work so that I can plan something to do. Now, what I planned to do was to take Harrison to the little safari that's about an hour from uh, from Atlanta. And then we'll also go a day to Legoland that's also in Atlanta. So the good thing is that I am in Atlanta and there are a lot of things to do. Um, the bad thing is the th- place I wanted to take him to would have been you know, out of the country. It's active hurricane season. So we decided not to do that. So. If you live in the Atlanta, Georgia area, and you have other places and other ideas that can entertain four-year-olds, go ahead and inbox them to me. Shoot me a a message and say, this is what I do with my little ones when we have free time in this area, even if it's outside of the state. Let me know what you do with, with your kids to keep them entertained. And I'm sure all of our future moms, our moms to be would appreciate this running list of things to do with your little ones to keep them entertained. So y'all just pray my strength because I feel like being off multiple days in a row with a toddler is is just a lot. Um, So pray for me. And if you know Harrison personally, you know that he likes to be busy and he likes to stay entertained. So, um, but yes, y'all shoot me y'all's ideas so that I can have a running list and he never gets bored. Now, all right, so now that I'm done begging for ideas, the topic of today's conversation is going to be about postpartum care, and the topic was thrown out by one of our listeners, and I know that I've done an episode about postpartum depression and about the postpartum course um, sort of on a more superficial level before. I don't think that we've talked about what the expectations of when you go to your postpartum visit and how to prepare for your postpartum course during the actual pregnancy. So we'll talk about that today. For the purposes of this episode, we'll divide the discussion into the early postpartum course and the late postpartum course. For the early course, let's define that as within the first six weeks of delivery. So that's your early postpartum course, six weeks after you have a baby. And for late postpartum course, that's everything beyond the six weeks of delivery. So, and that's my definition. Let's just keep it there for the conversation today. So for the early postpartum course or the first six weeks after delivery, these are the things that your provider should address and why. First, they're going to address the early warning signs of preeclampsia. Now, preeclampsia can happen at any time during the pregnancy after about 22 weeks of pregnancy, but it can also happen through the six-week postpartum course. Now, recall that preeclampsia is when you have high blood pressure meaning 140 or above on the top, which is your systolic blood pressure, or greater than 90 on the bottom, which is your diastolic pressure, 
in addition to protein in your urine. Now, protein in your urine is a sign of vascular damage. Now, preeclampsia is a precursor to eclampsia. That's why we call it pre, meaning before, and eclampsia. And eclampsia is when you have a seizure in pregnancy. So you meet criteria for preeclampsia with the blood pressure and the protein in your urine. Then all of a sudden you have an eclamptic seizure. Okay, then, then you're an eclamptic. You have eclampsia. Preeclampsia also puts people at risk for a number of other things. Heart attacks because your blood pressure is high can put you at risk for strokes. Also because your blood pressure is high. You can have fluid that builds up in your lungs. We call that pulmonary edema. Um, and if that happens, that can cause you to have issues with shortness of breath. Um, if it happens postpartum, then the most likely time for it to occur is in the first three weeks after delivery. So if you were already diagnosed with your with preeclampsia before you delivered, then your OBGYN will check your blood pressures, have you check your blood pressures at home, and then have you return three to four days after you get discharged or basically one week after delivery for an in-person evaluation to make sure you're not having any symptoms of preeclampsia, to make sure your blood pressures based on our blood pressure cuff is normal to make sure that you don't have too much swelling to make sure your lungs are clear. So that's what we're going to be doing during our in-person evaluation, which is a week after delivery. They'll also talk to you about breastfeeding. Okay. Breastfeeding is a full-time job. And I know I've talked about it on several different episodes of the podcast. And I'm pretty sure there's one episode in season one that we talk about it in great detail. Now, a lot of women need support in this area. So your provider will definitely ask about breastfeeding at your postpartum visit. Your pediatrician will also ask you about it, but that is definitely something the OBGYN should be doing as well because your pediatrician is asking you about it to make sure the baby has adequate nutrition. Your OBGYN is asking you about it because the milk is coming from your adult body, okay? And so that is an OBGYN issue uh, if you're having issues with breastfeeding. Now, things that can't you can do to prepare for breastfeeding, go ahead and add those breastfeeding bras, the lanolin ointment, and the cooling pads to your baby registry, baby shower registry, or you can stock up on them yourself. Those are things that you need to have handy at all times. Make sure that you talk to your provider um, during the pregnancy in the early third trimester about your desire to breastfeed if they don't bring it up, and make sure you're prescribed a breast pump because most insurance companies will pay for a breast pump. And that should be prescribed several weeks before you deliver so that you can get it on time. It's not like one of those things you go and pick up from the pharmacy the same day. Usually a breast pump is something that would need to be mailed back to you or mailed into the pharmacy at the hospital or sent to an equipment store. So, um, or some insurance companies make you send them the prescription and then they will send you the pump. Or some insurance companies make you buy the, the pump uh, over the counter, and then you send the prescription and the receipt so that you can be reimbursed. So every every insurance company is a little bit different. So make sure you know how to get reimbursed for your breast pump or how it needs to be prescribed. But um, but you need to talk about this before you go in the hospital to deliver. Now, most providers will not tell you to supplement because lactation specialists, they want you to supplement. They want you to make everything on your own naturally. But I swear by those lactation cookies, y'all. They're like oatmeal lactation cookies. Go ahead. Go ahead and buy them. Okay. They can't hurt. Go ahead and buy them. And so if you're having low milk production, that's the first thing I tell people to get. Of course, there's things that you can supplement with if you are a low producer. But before you decide that you on your own are a low producer, make sure that you're getting a lactation consultation. Okay. Usually they'll do 
a lactation consultation with a lactation specialist when you're in the hospital. The next day after you deliver, um, if you're having trouble breastfeeding, even if you're not, you know, ask for a lactation consultation. You can make sure you are latching properly and you make sure you know how to work the settings on your pump um, so that you're getting the you know maximum effort of bre- breastfeeding. Also, um, the lactation specialist will walk you through how to take it apart, take the equipment apart, how to clean your pump, um, and how to take care of your nipples and your breasts when you are um, breastfeeding. So definitely go ahead and get the lactation consultation, even if you've already done this. So if your your kids, if your kids, if your older children are two years old, you may not need one, right? You may know what to do because you just stopped breastfeeding, like right before you got pregnant. But if you don't know what to do, if it's been a couple years. A lot of pumps are out even since I delivered Harrison that weren't there when I had him. So, um, you know, ask about how to work your pump. And I always tell people, if you have a breast pump already, bring your breast pump with you to the hospital so that when you have your lactation consultation, you're learning to pump on your own breast pump and not just the hospital grade breast pump. The Medela is great and you can buy one for home use. But if you're somebody that has the Willow or the Spectra or some other breast pump that's not commonly used as hospital grade, you want to know that you can use your pump at home. And I remember I didn't do that. I didn't take my own advice. I used a Medela pump in the hospital and I had a Spectra at home. And I got home and I was like, uh, how do you set the settings? What buttons do I press? Don't be like me. Okay. Do as I say, not as I do. Bring your pump to the hospital so that you can learn and get comfortable using your own pump at the hospital while you have help, as opposed to having to go back and ask for help later on. And um, once you start breastfeeding, your nipples need to stay well hydrated and you need to apply lanolin ointment frequently. So I tell people, um, you know, when you get out of the shower, I usually tell people immediately pump, right? Because you're going to have more production because of the warmth of the shower. Uh, and you can easily pump and, and hand express while you're pumping. And then after you get through with pumping, then apply lotion to your body and the lanolin ointment to your nipples. Um, same thing right after you are finished um, having your baby latched to the nipple, always clean the breast. So you're going to clean the breast before, obviously, as well, but clean the breast afterwards, too, and apply the lanolin ointment that promotes healing to your nipples um, in between each uh, feeding and pumping uh, so that you don't have cracked or, you know, dry and cracked nipples. Okay. The next thing your OBGYN will definitely mention at your six weeks postpartum visit is wound healing. If you had a vaginal tear or even a C-section, it's important to take care of those incisions. Okay. Gently clean the area, whether it's the, the vaginal tear or the incision with mild soap and water. You, uh, If you have a vaginal tear, sitting in a little water once or twice a day can help ease the pain. That's called a sitz bath. Also, when urinating, if you have a laceration or a little tear in the vagina that's been repaired, or even those that are superficial tears, get one of those squeeze bottles, um, you know, you know, the syringe with the bulb, they usually give them to you at the hospital, but you can order them on Amazon, but that you call it a peri bottle and just squeeze, you know, water while uh, down there in the vaginal area while you're urinating. And that can help alleviate some of the burning that you may have with superficial tears. So if you have superficial tears to the labia minora 
meaning the inside um, labia, or even superficial tears to the labia majora, like, um, or anywhere in the vagina that's exposed, so the outer vagina. Spraying a little clean water while you urinate will help any type of burning. And so urine obviously can burn if it's going through an open cut. Same same thing. You're going to spray or splash water down there with a the peri bottle while you're urinating to help alleviate that pain. Okay. Um, for those with C-sections, watch for drainage from that incision. Make sure to shower or bathe daily. Okay. Some people think they can't bathe with the, with the C-section. I don't know why. Like you should bathe or shower every day. Uh, most people tell you not to submerge in the tub the first week. But showering, definitely you need to do. You need to keep that decision clean and you need to bathe in some way every single day. And then after you get out of the shower, meaning after you've washed over that incision with warm soap and water, yes, you need to wipe over that. And don't avoid wiping over that C-section incision. Wipe over with mild soap and water. None of that bath and body work stuff. I'm talking, you know, the sensitive skin, dove, unscented or very lightly scented soap, okay? Light lather over that. You don't have to scrub, okay? Don't scrub. There's no need for that. You don't have to do that. But gently wiping over with with, uh, warm soap and water to make sure it's clean. And the goal is to keep the incision clean. After bathing or showering, make sure that you dry the incision. Usually I um, tell people to pat dry. So you're not wiping or scrubbing over it. Pat dry with a, with a, um, with a towel. And then um, I would wipe over mine with alcohol just to make sure it's really dry, right? Like like a light alcohol pad, just one time across, let that air dry. After you're discharged from the hospital, you shouldn't have to cover it. So if you start to have a drainage from that incision, especially when you didn't have drainage when you left, you need to let your OBGYN know just in case it needs to be drained. So we can get what's called seromas, which are just pockets of fluid that your body can produce. That's not an infection. It can accumulate under the skin. Sometimes you can get also blood to accumulate in pockets so called hematomas, meaning there are little superficial vessels that were bleeding. They stopped bleeding, but now they left a very big clot there. Um, some of those things need to be drained. Or sometimes it can be a sign of infection. If you have purulence or pus coming from your incision, that could be a sign of infection. If you have redness around the incision, that can be a sign of infection as well. So it could be something that needs to be opened up and drained or needs to be drained with a needle or needs to be treated with antibiotics. So if you have drainage from your incision, you need to let your OBGYN know. And the last thing that your OBGYN should definitely talk about with it, with at your six weeks postpartum visit is postpartum depression. All patients will get a postpartum depression screen, even if you feel like you're the happiest person in the world. It is standard of care that you will get screened. Different clinics use different screening tools. The most commonly used is the Edinburgh postpartum depression screen. Um, and in addition to that screen, it's important to express any concerns you have with your provider. So let's say you don't have a score that says depression, but you're overwhelmed with breastfeeding. Make sure they know that you're overwhelmed so they take the extra step in getting another lactation consultation. Or you're overwhelmed, your baby's not sleeping enough. You're not sleeping. So they can talk to you about sleep habits and ways to to train, sleep train your baby. So make sure they know what's really bothering you when you before you leave that office so that we can address those specific issues and get you the support you need.
Now, one other thing that's going to come up in the six weeks postpartum visit, not for everybody, but for some, if you happen to have gestational diabetes, they will have you take the two hour glucose challenge test. Okay. Usually that's a test you do fasting. So you want to make sure that if you have diabetes, gestational, meaning not pre-existing, meaning you only got in the pregnancy. If you have pre-existing type one or type two diabetes, you will not need to take a two hour glucose challenge test. But if you had gestational diabetes, you will need to take a two hour glucose challenge test. And so I recommend that you make sure that that test is done early because usually it's done fasting, right? So you don't want to, you know, 1 p.m., you know, uh, visit and then you need to be fasting all day. Or if you do that visit at 1 p.m., just say, hey, can I come back on Tuesday morning and go ahead and get that test done? so that you're only fasting for a short period of time and when you have time to do it because they'll check your finger stick fasting and then make you drink the little glucola load, um, the 75 gram glucose load, and then wait two hours to have your blood drawn again to see if you have ongoing diabetes, right? So if you fail that, then they'll send you to the endocrinologist to um, talk about ways to control your insulin resistance, okay? So that is another thing they will talk to you about at your six-week postpartum visit if you had diabetes. If you have other medical problems, this is the time where they will also talk to you about ongoing care. So if you have high blood pressure, they'll talk to you and make sure you had follow up with your primary care provider or cardiologist um, for ongoing care. If you have thyroid disease, they'll make sure you know to schedule an appointment with your endocrinologist. So that six-week postpartum care, in addition to addressing those things I just talked about, We'll talk about continuation of ongoing care for your medical condition. Now, for the late postpartum course, this is anything beyond six weeks. Here are the issues that may arise that your OBGYN may not mention at your six-week postpartum course, but it's going to be up to you to reach back out to your provider if you have issues. So for the late postpartum course, these are the things that may happen beyond six weeks that your OB obviously is beyond six weeks. It, they're not going to reach out to you to check at eight weeks or eight months what's going on, okay? It's going to be up to you to make sure you reach back out to your OBGYN if you have any of these issues. So number one, breast engorgement. They will talk to you about breast support and breast engorgement at your six weeks postpartum course, but if you haven't experienced it because it's only been six weeks, obviously they don't know that you may get breast engorgement at six months. So you have breast engorgement, then you need to contact your provider to say, this is what's going on, okay? Because breast engorgement could be just that. Your breasts are engorged because they're full and they're painful. Or it could be a sign that you have mastitis, which is an infection of one of the breast ducts. So if you have a redness and fever, this is a sign you need to contact your OBGYN's office to get checked out. Now, breast engorgement can commonly happen when you're transitioning from breastfeeding and starting to wean your baby. With less frequent pumping and latching, the breast can become engorged. Now, back in the day, you probably were told to put cabbage leaves in your bra. This still works. This definitely still works. You put cabbage leaves in your bra. But now the recommendation is to express and then bind the breast with bandages or a tight sports bra. And this will reduce the amount of milk that's produced. If you get engorged again, then you will need to express again. Don't just keep the breast milk there. You got to express and empty it, bind the breast um, to to uh, decrease the promotion of breast milk. Applying ice packs to the breast can also help reduce um, engorgement and can help slow down the production of breast milk. So if you know you're not going to breastfeed, don't have the baby latch, hand express, 
Apply ice packs, put a tight sports bra on. Um, if you have breast tenderness or pain, take Motrin. Um, but obviously, if you have constant engorgement or fever, you need to reach back out to the OBGYN. Care, caregiver fatigue or mom fatigue. Yeah, no one prepares you for this, um, but it's overwhelming to be a mom, right? The first couple weeks, I feel like you're just in a state of just euphoria you're so in love with that baby and everything is great and the baby is always sleeping in the first six weeks and not causing an issue but when that baby hits like three four months and it's crying because he wants to be fed and wants to cluster feed and then breast you know teething it can be a lot and if you're a single parent you might not ever get a real break so i tell my patients to find your core supporters before you have the baby if you don't have family around then look to, you know, your friends, your coworkers or church members, you can trust and lean on them to help watch your little one while you do the things that make you you. So once you're outside of the six weeks postpartum time frame, then, you know, you, you may want to start feeling like yourself or you should, you want to get out of the house. So go get your nails done, go get a massage, go to your sorority meeting or meetings for organizations, get back to who you were before so that you can keep being yourself. But in order to do that, you need to have your core group of of peers you can trust and lean on. Now, obviously the key word here is trust, okay? Family members, some family members you can't trust, but you know, you have a sister or a mom, or you have, you know, a very close girlfriend. These are people you can say, hey, I, you know, plan ahead of time. Hey, I need to get my hair done, you know, once every couple of weeks, do you mind? keeping my little one and for a couple of hours they don't mind spoiling that baby but you got to ask and you got to ask early right you know nobody wants to be inconvenienced right so if you're you have a hair appointment saturday don't ask on a friday then you're scrambling right ask the month before like hey i get my nails done every friday morning are you okay with keeping my little one every other friday morning for a couple of hours most people won't mind that especially if you're Planning ahead. So schedule ahead um, and find a core group of people that you can trust. Relationship issues. Yeah, they come after the six weeks postpartum course. They come. Okay. Not only can being a mom be overwhelming, but new kids can just strain a relationship. Okay. So I counsel my patients that before delivery, make up in your mind time to spend with you, between you and your significant other. You need time. So make sure to be consistent with things like date night or just time that you leave the house and leave your child with somebody. As a new mom, it can be hard to leave your child for the first time. Some people don't leave their children for the first time until six months. I would say don't do that. After the first month to six weeks, it's time for you to start going back on date night. Okay. And of course, once you bond the six week postpartum course, you need to be intentional about reintroducing intimacy in your relationship. Now that can be very scary, right? Like for some people, they they may have had a high risk pregnancy and not been intimate for the whole pregnancy. Or they may, you know, that six weeks, they may have a tear in the vagina that was healing and they have vaginal pain. And that recently just went away at six weeks. So there may be a little bit scared that it's going to hurt. And the the first sexual intercourse after having a baby, it can be a little bit, you know, uncomfortable, right? Things have shifted a little bit. Um, I have a really good episode about postpartum sex that features Dr. Kim Harris. That's in season one. 
That's a great episode. Y'all go back and check that out. But you really do have to be intentional in saying, okay, six weeks. Okay, let's plan a date. Let's reintroduce some intimacy back into our relationship. A relationship without intimacy, y'all, it's just not a relationship. Especially if you have two people that have the capabilities of being intimate. Now, if you're in a relationship and one person, you know, is a paraplegic or has a medical condition where you can't be intimate, that's another thing. And you can be intimate on different levels than just sexually. But if you have two people that have sexual organs that function, then you should be intentional about making sure those sexual organs are functioning between the two of you together. Um, I also want to say with changes in hormone level, okay, your very high estrogen level in pregnancy, and now the estrogen level is dropped. So your, your, you know, the amount of lubrication your vagina makes can decrease because now you have a drop in estrogen. Always use lubrication. I'm a big, big, big supporter of lubrication with babies, without babies. I just feel like the lube makes it just that much better because just in case you're in the middle of sex and he does something awkward and all of a sudden you dry up, it can become a painful situation. Without a lubrication, you don't have that issue, okay? So get you your favorite lube, try some different lubrications out. And especially if you just had a baby and you are being intimate for the first couple of times, make sure to use some lubrication. And most people that start using lubrication will always use lubrication from then on out. Okay, so use a lubrication, especially if you're a mom that's a little older mom. Our bodies in our 40s versus our bodies in our, our 30s, it, it may not function the way it used to function. So add some lube, okay? Thank me later. Add the lubrication when you're starting to have sex again. The next thing that your OBGYN will not mention, and you got to bring it up, they might mention at your wellness exam at six months later when it's time for your pap smear, but they may not mention at your six weeks postpartum visit, pelvic floor disorders. Yep. Having a baby can weaken the muscles that make up your floor, the floor of your pelvis and carrying the weight of the pregnancy uh, weakens, you know, the bladder as well. I mean, you have a uterus, which is a weight that you can't, that's growing in size and in weight constantly over the course of six months that's now squeezing on your little bladder, okay? So now your bladder is weaker, your pelvic floor is weaker, and we know when you're urinating, it's a relaxation thing, okay? So if you're if everything is already over-relaxed, of course you can have leakage. So when you sneeze or cough, all of a sudden you can lose a little bit of pee, right? And so women, the more children you have, the more likely you are to have weakness of the pelvic floor and uh, what's called stress urinary incontinence, okay, or losing a little urine with any type of strain. And if this happens, then you need to contact your OBGYN, right? Now, you should not be doing pelvic floor exercises before six weeks postpartum. That's why it's not brought up at, at your visit. You shouldn't. You should wait till after six weeks to do exercises to, you know, strengthen your abdominal muscles. That should be six weeks. Kegel exercises to strengthen the vaginal vaginal wall, that should be done after six weeks. In the six weeks, the only thing we want to do is heal those incisions. The laceration should heal, the incision, your C-section scar should heal. After six weeks, that's when if you're having issues, you contact your OBGYN. They may um, recommend um, pelvic physical therapy or physiotherapy. Of the pelvis, they'll recommend different Kegel exercises, and they'll also recommend different things you can do at home to help strengthen your pelvic floor. 
But those are things you're going to have to notice and say, let me contact my OBGYN to ask them about those things. Hair loss. Now, we discussed skin changes and hair loss with Dr. Diane Davis in an episode called Skin. I don't remember what season that was, y'all. I think it was season two. But the title of the episode is Skin. But in a nutshell, the growth phase of hair is longer during pregnancy, right? And so during pregnancy, your nails are growing, your hair is growing. Everybody thinks it's because of the prenatal vitamins. It's not because of that. It's because of hormonal changes that we have that promotes more growth. It promotes the growth phase of hair growth, right? And our hair goes through a growth phase and a shedding phase. Well, guess what? When those hormones go back to this pre-pregnancy state, now you have the regular timing of growth and shedding. So people are like, oh my God, my baby caused me to lose all my hair. Not really. You're just going back to the normal growth phase. And so now instead of your hair being growth phase, now all of a sudden the hair is in a shedding phase. So you're shedding more of your follicles. Um, and so it leads to thinning afterwards, postpartum hair thinning. Okay. Your hair should go back to normal, but it could take some time because now you've lost more hair because now more hair is in a shedding phase than a growth phase. This is completely normal, but if it's excessive, you need to reach out to your OBGYN and they will send you to a dermatologist for further treatment, okay? Those are things people are like, I'm so disappointed my OBGYN didn't tell me about this. Well, they're only talking to you about the six-week stuff, right? These are things that we need to be self-advocates and say, this is what's going on with my body. I don't like it. Is this normal? Do I need help because of it? Like, talk to your providers and, and tell them about these things. Now, obviously. Within a year, you should be having your next pap smear, right? So if you had a pap smear at the beginning of pregnancy, you delivered at nine months. A couple months later, you should be going back for your well woman exam. So you should have a baby that's three or four months old when you're going back for your well woman exam. So this is a that would be a great time to mention that at your well woman exam. And most OBGYNs will mention it. But if you're a patient that's not going for your wellness exams every year with your primary care provider or with OBGYN, you may think you don't have the opportunity to ask those things. But, you know, I would be a very good, I'm a supporter of making sure you keep your wellness exams on time so that these things that are things that can happen beyond the six-week postpartum visit are things you can address directly during your well woman visits with your provider or OBGYN. All right, so now that we know a little bit more about the postpartum course and what to expect, let's go to some cases and questions. Our first case is a 41-year-old who is three and a half weeks postpartum from her second child. She had an uncomplicated vaginal delivery and was discharged home two days later. Since delivery, she has felt more tired than usual and has had swelling. She has had a headache, which has been present now for about three days. She rates her headache as a 6 out of 10 in intensity, and it did not go away with Tylenol. This prompted her to go to the hospital today. At the hospital, her blood pressure was 160 over 108. She was given a dose of labetalol by mouth for blood pressure control in the ER. Her OBGYN consulted you for further management. All right, so this is classic postpartum preeclampsia. And the fact that it's happening three to three and a half weeks after delivery is like hallmark for preeclampsia. And when we talk about people getting into trouble after pregnancy, it's usually a complication of unrecognized preeclampsia. So the fact that this patient recognized, hey, I have a headache that's not going away. Um, I need to go in and see somebody. It's 
this is good because these things are things that when we talk about maternal mortality, meaning women, especially black women dying, you have way more women that die in the postpartum course than during pregnancy. We talk about people dying in pregnancy. It's really postpartum. Um, we do have a problem with postpartum insurance coverage. We have a problem with postpartum care here in the United States. And so as women or patients who have babies, we need to recognize when it's not feeling right with our bodies. Okay. If you don't feel right, it shouldn't take three days for you to go in. If you take Tylenol and in an hour, your headache is not getting better. You go to the hospital. Okay. Because insurance only allows sometimes one postpartum visit at six weeks postpartum course. If you're high risk, two postpartum visits, right? Your two week, your, your week check. And then they're seeing you again at six weeks. Uh, a lot of hospital systems that have high risk services do do remote blood pressure monitoring, but some don't. And so as a patient, you have to recognize that this is not normal. And some patients don't want to go in the hospital because they're like, oh, I just had a baby. I don't want to go back. But the safest thing to do is go to go back because nobody ever thinks that something is really wrong until something is really wrong. Okay. So I would say that this patient should have went back before, but I'm glad that she's there now. Um, a headache and a blood pressure of 160 over 108 is preeclampsia until proven otherwise. So this patient would need to be admitted to the hospital. And, and, and I would not have given her oral medicine. I would have given her a dose of IV medicine because the goal of preeclampsia is to get your blood pressure down pretty quickly and stabilize, right? Um, we start magnesium. That is uh, IV medicine or IV magnesium. That will decrease the risk of an eclamptic seizure. So remember I said eclampsia is when you have you are diagnosed with preeclampsia, but then you actually have a seizure along with the high blood pressure and protein in your urine. And you actually don't have to have protein in the urine to be diagnosed with preeclampsia or eclampsia. You can have symptoms plus the blood pressure. That's enough to be diagnostic of preeclampsia. So for this patient, regardless of the protein, regardless of the labs, which I will get to evaluate, she would need to be admitted for 24 hours of IV magnesium to prevent a seizure. And then we will initiate IV antihypertensive, so IV doses of labetalol or hydralazine to get the blood pressure down and stabilized. And then once it's stabilized, then we can decide whether or not we're going to send her home or oral medicine once her when she's not having any symptoms and once her blood pressure is very controlled. Um, and so this is definitely classic preeclampsia. And the thing I wanted to point out about this for the case Pearl is that postpartum preeclampsia is more common than preeclampsia during pregnancy. So we have got to watch for the sign. Remember, signs of preeclampsia, whether you are diagnosed during the pregnancy or not, a headache that does not go away with Tylenol, blurry vision or double vision. And I'm not talking about, oh, you just woke up or you're looking into the sun and you're seeing spots. No, no, no. You're walking around, all of a sudden your vision's blurry or you're seeing spots before your eyes. So vision changes. And then pain at the top right side of your abdomen. So right under your rib cage on the right side, that's pain over your liver. Those are the three symptoms of preeclampsia. And if you have a blood pressure cuff at home, check your blood pressure. If the top number is over 140, which is your systolic blood pressure, or your bottom number is 90 or over, that's high blood pressure. That always prompts a hospital visit when you're a postpartum. 
And if you go to a hospital other than the one you delivered at, even the one you delivered at, make sure the ER doctor knows, I just had a baby. My blood pressure is high. Okay. So that they know to automatically consult your OBGYN or an OBGYN that will look for signs of preeclampsia because not all ER doctors are going to think preeclampsia. They're just thinking, is your blood pressure stroke range or did not stroke range? Which we know to have an eclamptic seizure and all the bad things. You don't have to have an astronomically high blood pressure. You can have mild range blood pressures and all of a sudden be discharged home and have an eclamptic seizure. We do not want that to happen. So you need to make sure you tell them, hey, I'm postpartum. I just had a baby X, Y, and Z weeks ago. And if they don't consult your OBGYN, ask them to. Hey, can, can you call my OBGYN to make sure I'm okay from a pregnancy, a postpartum standpoint? All right, medical intern, do we have any more cases or email questions? Yes, we have an email question and it says, Dr. Plenty, I'm two weeks postpartum from having my first baby. I now lose a little bit of urine when I cough or sneeze. Is this normal? If so, will this improve or should I be doing pelvic floor exercises or something else to strengthen my bladder? The first question is, is it normal, right? Normal? No, it's not normal. It's called stress urinary incontinence. Is it common? It's very common, right? Because like I said before in the intro, you have a baby. It's like a weight you can't put down that is constantly pressing on the bladder. And the muscles that usually strengthen or hold the urine in are now weak because you had a weight that kept getting bigger and heavier and heavier over time. Those muscles are weakened, right? And so now those muscles are a little bit more relaxed. And instead of you having to relax your body to urinate, it's like in a constant state of of partial relaxation. So you coughing or sneezing cause you to lose a little bit of urine. That's because of the impact uh, and weakening the floor caused by the pregnancy. So it's common, but it's not normal. Should you, should this improve? Yeah. I mean, over time it should improve and you should, uh, that pelvic floor will rebuild some strength, but for some people it doesn't. And if you, if it doesn't improve after six weeks, then yes, you need to be doing some Kegel exercises and you need to talk to your OBGYN about, um, about your symptoms, because if they don't improve over a certain amount of time with Kegel exercises, then they will send you to either your gynecologist or they may send you to, um, uh, somebody that can do, uh, pelvic physical therapy to work on strengthening the pelvic floor to reduce your need for surgical intervention. Surgery would be the last thing that would be needed for stress urinary incontinence. We never want to do surgery before we do, you know, more conservative approaches first. And so they would have you do those more conservative approaches. But at two weeks postpartum, it's just too early to say if it's a real problem or if if this is just something that's caused by the pregnancy that will end up getting better on its own. Now, I will say that people that are older having babies do have a higher risk of longstanding stress urinary incontinence and may need physical therapy, pelvic physical therapy, or even um, surgical intervention. Um, But doing pelvic floor exercises before six weeks can actually be more detrimental than helpful. And so I would tell you to wait on doing the pelvic floor exercises right now. And then when you hit six weeks, 
then go hard, right? We want your body to completely heal first, and then you can do your four exercises to help strengthen your pelvic floor, which will reduce your risk of having stress urinary incontinence. Medical intern, do we have any more emailed questions? This one says, I had fibroids during my pregnancy, and I thought they would be removed at the time of my C-section. To my surprise, my OBGYN told me that she did not remove the fibroids and that I would need another pelvic ultrasound after my six-week postpartum visit. Is this malpractice? Why would the fibroids not be removed at the time of my delivery? Okay, so this is absolutely not malpractice. A lot of patients think, oh, if I have a cyst on my ovary or if I have a fibroid, then that's going to be removed, especially if I have a C-section. That is not true. So in pregnancy, 45% of your blood volume goes to your uterus, okay? That is a very bloody procedure, and it's a procedure with a high amount of blood loss. A myomectomy, which is also the removal of a fibroid in pregnancy, is also a high blood loss surgery. So you don't want to compound the two complex surgeries at the same time. Very rarely do OBGYNs or surgeons remove fibroids at the same time. I've removed fibroids at the same time, but it's because I have to get down to the lower uterine segment, right? I've had patients that have had fibroids literally blocking the whole front part of their uterus, and I had to take the fibroid out at the same time or before I could even reach the baby, right? That is an extreme case, and that is not common. If I can avoid removing a fibroid at the time of delivery, I will. Why? Because if you get into an issue where somebody's bleeding, then you have no leg to stand on when they've lost too much blood and you're transfusing them. Or better yet, if you have somebody that's a Jehovah's Witness and does not want blood, and now you've lost a lot of blood. Or if you remove the fibroid and the uterus isn't firm, and then there's bleeding and bleeding and bleeding, and you have to have a hysterectomy because you can't control bleeding. Well, is it because you removed the fibroid or is it because the the patient just did not have tone in their uterus because they weren't going to have any tone in their uterus? We don't know, but we know that fibro removal is bloody and so is a C-section. So they're not going to do anything to complicate that. The purpose of a C-section is to remove the baby, deliver the baby, close you back up and reapproximate everything together. If you have a cyst over there in your ovary, nobody's going to be messing around with that cyst. Why? Because you have super big engorged vessels that are like the size of two of my fingers put together, pumping blood to the uterus. And if I happen to nick that thing, then I am going to have to remove your whole ovary, right? And nobody wants to have to deal with hormone replacement and things like that or decreased fertility because one of their ovaries happened to be removed. So we don't muck around and get into things that we don't have to. Additionally, most fibroids are hormonally responsive. And so after you deliver it, the size of those fibroids usually do shrink. I had six fibroids, all of which quadrupled in size. They were two, three centimeters before I got pregnant. My largest one was nine centimeters in my third trimester of pregnancy. Now they're back down to being two, two inch, you know, little bitty fibroids again. They do tend to shrink after delivery. And so we don't want to muck around and do things that may cause you to have a hysterectomy during delivery because we're trying to be aggressive and remove fibroids at the same time. We do not do that unless we absolutely have to, meaning we had to go through a fibroid or the fibroid's bleeding or we can't reapproximate or close your uterus because it's hard to reapproximate a fibroid. Then we may need to remove the fibroid. But otherwise, 
they will not be removed at the same time. I'm sorry that your OBGYN did not tell you that, okay, that they will not be removed at the same time. But the guideline is to not remove fibroids at the same time with C-section. So that is not um, malpractice. Now, why would why would uh, you need a, a pelvic ultrasound at six weeks? Because like I said before, usually when those hormone levels drop, the fibroids can also shrink. So then it's monitoring the size of the fibroids to see, hey, are they even visible now? Do I need to remove them or, 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 or should we leave them alone? Are they impending, impeding into the cavity or not? And if you have fibroids that are now small and you have, you know, one fibroid or two fibroids, but you have a normal monthly cycles, then there's no reason to have to remove them, right? But if you're like, no, before pregnancy, I had horrible uh, pain and I had a lot of bleeding. Then afterwards, they're going to look at the size of them to see if they've significantly changed. And if they haven't, then they'll talk to you about going forward with removing. And then based on the size of them, they'll counsel you about how they need to be removed, whether they can be removed laparoscopically, meaning putting a camera in your belly and using little robotic arms, or whether they need to go back through the previous C-section scar and do an open incision to remove them. Um, the size and location of the fibroids will tell your OBGYN the best approach to take that. And they won't, they can't do that without some type of imaging, whether that's a pelvic MRI for mapping of fibroids or whether that's a pelvic ultrasound to just look at the size of the fibroids if you don't have a lot of them. So that's the reason for the ultrasound afterwards. And that's the reason that it's not malpractice and it's normal not to remove fibroids at the same time of delivering the baby. All right, medical intern, do we have any more email questions or cases? And she's shaking her head no. So thanks so much, you guys, for listening to Pregnancy Pearls Podcast. I hope that you've learned more about the postpartum course and things you can do to prepare for your post-delivery life. If you enjoy the show, make sure to share with your friends, rate, and comment. If you or someone you know has had a pregnancy complication or unique pregnancy situation, let me know about it. Email me at pregnancypearls at gmail.com to hear your topic or case discussed on one of our podcast episodes. Also, remember to follow me on Instagram at pregnancy underscore pearls and Facebook at pregnancy pearls. And feel free to check out the website, drnicoleplenty.com for free pregnancy downloadables and your free pregnancy checklist. And for goodness sake, please catch up on seasons one, two, and three of the podcast. In closing, remember to advocate for yourself. You are your biggest advocate and no one knows what's going on with your body except for you. Thanks for listening. Pregnancy Pearls is hosted by Dr. Nicole Lee Plenty. Produced by Nicole Plenty and Janine Brunson Johnson. Executive producer Ken Johnson. Find Pregnancy Pearls on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and rate. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice for diagnosis or treatment of individual medical conditions. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with specific questions regarding a medical condition. Pregnancy Pearls is a Mean Old Lion Media production.